Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Great. Well, I, I'm speaking this morning. We're going to continue the Isaiah series. And uh, the point I kind of wanted to start from is um, reflecting with you. I wonder if you've ever had those times where uh, you lose your sort of sense of vision as a Christian. Most of you in the room will be Christians. So if you're a Christian, you know, have you ever had those times where you, you lose your sense of vision? You kind of lose, you sort of get to the place where you think like, what is this all about anyway? This coming on a Sunday, praying, reading the Bible, you know, trying to do community and um, these sort of activities that we get ourselves involved in. And um, like, what is that all about? And um, yeah, those kind of times where you, you sort of have lost any sense of, of the why, really, a sense of purpose. Or, or perhaps um, similarly, you kind of find that you've just lost your passion one day, you know. Uh, if you lose your vision, your, your passion tends to go pretty soon after that. There's a proverb, isn't there, that without vision, the people perish. And... Um, you know, so I wonder if you've ever found you, yourself kind of walking through a vaguely, a vaguely Christian life, but the heart's gone out of it, really. And, um, and you've lost that sense of vision. You know, you're not, you might be, as I say, sort of look a bit Christian from the outside, but you're not likely to be selling your possessions anytime soon or giving up your life for the sake of the gospel. Or perhaps there might be a few of you here this morning who aren't yet Christians, who, who are kind of just getting to know us, exploring, uh, working out um, who we are. And, and maybe kind of you're trying to work out what is this all about, really? Like, what, what is this? <laughs> what are these people really all about? What's it really going on? Well, today we're going to look at a bit of the Bible from the book of Isaiah, which captures, really, what it's all about. So um, we're going to read it, and then I'll take us through it. So it's Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 4. Do we have it on the screen? Oh, well done, team. Brilliant. So it's on the screen behind me as well. But uh, feel free to get it up in your Bibles or your phone Bibles if you want. I'll be referring back to it all the way through. So Isaiah 61, verses 4 to 1 says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." This is what it's all about, okay? 
So, Lord, I pray this morning that as we look at this passage, that our vision would be restored, that our passion would be relit, and that we would find or refine something to live and to die for. Amen. So before um, we talk about kind of us today, I just want to trace this passage through the scriptures. We need to understand uh, kind of how we make sense of it by looking at how it's made sense of in the Bible itself. This autumn, as we're preaching on Isaiah, we, we're not attempting to preach through the whole book. Um, those of you who have read the book of Isaiah will know it's far too long to do that. So we are having to kind of pick passages. And therefore, it's important that I just give us a little bit of context of this passage, kind of what it means in the book that it comes from. In other words, just to explain what it would have meant to those who first heard it. Isaiah, um, Tim introduced us to the book of Isaiah a few weeks ago. Isaiah, at this point in chapter 61, by the time we get here, Isaiah is prophesying to a people in exile. And the Old Testament tells us the story of how the Jewish people were chosen by God to be a special nation, who would have a special calling primarily to reveal what God's like to the other nations around them by the way they lived and the way that they worshipped. However, they failed to do this. Um, and over kind of a couple of centuries with lots of back and forth with God, eventually their failure to um, live into their calling meant that they were driven out in exile, taken out of their land. And um, this is kind of the situation when Isaiah speaks these words in Isaiah 61. Um, he prophesies to a people who uh, their land is not their own. They're captives in exile. Their cities are ruined. And as Isaiah uh, prophesies, he speaks comfort to his people. It starts in chapter 40 that Tim spoke from when, we, when he introduced this series. You comfort to my people. Speak comfort to my people. And Isaiah prophesies about how God's going to make things right, how he's going to rescue his people, restore them. And in the midst of these prophecies, he begins to talk about this Messiah figure, a particular person, a special servant of the Lord who would come to the Jewish people and through whom God would save them and restore them. And this passage that we read together this morning, can we just keep it on the screen actually? Is that all right? And I know we can't get it all on the screen at once, but if we keep it on, I'll keep walking through. This, um, this passage, the best way to understand it is um, it's as if the Messiah was speaking. It's obviously Isaiah prophesying, but he's, he's sort of putting these words in the mouth of the Messiah or maybe the Messiah's words are in his mouth. You know what I mean? He's, he's prophesying as if he were the Messiah. This is what the Messiah is speaking to his people. So I just want to read through the text again, pausing after each line or two to just pick up the resonances that this would have had for the Jewish people two and a half thousand years ago uh, living in exile. So the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, speaks the Messiah, because the Lord has anointed me and Messiah literally means the, the kind of anointed one. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Well, what normally happens when a foreign power invades your land and takes you off into exile is that most of you live in extreme poverty. Many of the exiles in Babylon would have lived in hardship and say to those sort of few scattered people who were left on the land, heavy tax burdens, 
agriculture destroyed. Most were likely to be poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I wonder if you've ever grasped how brokenhearted the people of Israel were in exile. Like, we talk about it a fair bit when we preach, because you, you need to make sense of the Bible. But, like, have you ever read Psalm 137 properly? Like, let me read you a little bit of Psalm 137. This is of Psalm written in exile. Maybe you can pick up some of the brokenheartedness. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion's just the word for Jerusalem, when we remembered Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. You get the sense in that psalm, I think, of the kind of brokenheartedness of the exiles. But the Messiah comes to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Obviously, the exiles were captives, opening a prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And remember, as, as, uh, as Tim said, it, it was the Lord's punishment, it was the Lord's judgment that led to exile. The Messiah comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Vengeance on those nations who had driven them out and enslaved them. To grant to those who mourn in Jerusalem, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. In that culture, they often wore ashes to symbolize their grief and their mourning. Sackcloth and ashes, it's a good biblical phrase, isn't it? Well, they did it. Oil of gladness instead of mourning, garments of praise instead of a spirit of despair or a faint spirit. It says faint spirit in the SV, but I've always preferred the spirit of despair, really. I think it's more poetically apt. That's the trauma of exile, isn't it? The kind of giving up of hope, the spirit of despair. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's their original calling. The Messiah is prophesying and saying, I'm going to restore you to your original calling. You're going to glorify the Lord. They shall build up the ancient ruins, raise up the former devastations. Their cities were literally gutted. I mean, this is what you did in the ancient world. When you invaded somewhere, you left. You know, Jesus talks about not one stone will be left on another. That's what they did. Because if you leave the walls up, then people resist you and fight. You, you absolutely destroy the cities. Their cities were devastated. The Messiah says they shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. That's the resonance when it was first heard. And I wanted to take you through that, so hopefully we can grasp how this passage that Isaiah speaks to the exiles kind of crystallized everything that the Jews hoped for. Like everything about their purpose, like this is what it's all about for them, these things being fulfilled. And the Jews waited for such a Messiah to come for century after century. So this was maybe, I don't know, like, say roughly 700 BC. And um, the centuries rolled by, 
They did eventually return to the land, but never returned to this kind of restoration. They, under the Maccabees, they had some political independence for a while, but not for very long. Soon Rome came in. And, and then, approximately 700 years later, this happens in Galilee. Okay? This happens in Galilee. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 4. Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And they would be. This is everything they hoped for. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If you've never realized the kind of enormity of that moment, I hope you start to see it now. After waiting for 700 years, Jesus says, today this, will, this is being fulfilled. Because Jesus was the Messiah, this Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about, the Messiah that the Jews hoped for. He understood that this passage was talking about him. And so in his ministry, including fulfilling it in some ways that the Jews weren't expecting. You know, let's have a look at Jesus as he fulfills this text. Good news to the poor. Well, Jesus is always defending the poor, isn't he? Always um, embracing the weak and the marginalized, condemning those who oppress them. Always telling the rich to repent. Liberty of captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Literally, Jesus went around healing people, didn't he? Literally giving sight to the blind. Literally driving out demons who kept people captive. Literally setting people free from sickness and oppression all the time. And this is the like triple significance of Jesus' miracles. You, you know, that his miracles reveal his power. Yes, they do. They reveal his compassion. Yes, they do. But they also reveal his identity. Like his miracles matter not just so he can help some people out, but because that demonstrates the fulfillment of these prophecies. It demonstrates that he is, he is the Messiah. And there, do you remember the time where John the Baptist starts having doubts about Jesus? Like, is he, is he the Messiah who was meant to come? Is he the one? And so he sends some messengers to Jesus and sort of, says, are you, are you, or should we wait for someone else? And Jesus says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. He says, yeah, of course I'm the Messiah. See, what I'm, see what's going on. See what I'm doing. And then he says something like, bless the one who doesn't slip because of me. 
Because, of course, Jesus was also fulfilling this prophecy in ways that were surprising and in ways that were offensive. When Isaiah prophesied, he prophesied for the, for the nation of Israel only. This was a hope for the Jews. When Jesus came, he said, this is not just hope for the Jews. I'm going to fulfill this prophecy, but this is going to be hope for the entire world. That bit I read you in Luke 4, that's the first thing he does. He says, this, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And the first thing he does is say, and it's also for the Gentiles. And they hate him and try and kill him. So he fulfills this in surprising ways as well. Jesus came as Israel's Messiah, but the whole world's saviour. And because he came for the whole world, Jesus taught through his ministry that the captivity that he came to set us free from was not really the political captivity of Babylon or Rome, but the greater captivity to sin and to death. Israel's biggest problem was never Babylon. Like, you know, we'll, we'll see next week the Lord can lift up a people and bring down a people with a, you know, barely lifting his little finger. That's not the problem. The problem for Israel really was their captivity to sin, their slavery to sin. And so too the rest of the world. And Jesus made clear that the captivity I come to deal with is this captivity. I come to set these captives free. So Jesus took Isaiah 61, claimed he was the Messiah, claimed he was going to fulfill these prophecies, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. So having whipped through sort of 800 years of biblical history in 10 minutes, well done if you stayed with me. Let's talk a little bit about us, shall we? And our context today. We still live in a world that is largely captive to sin and death, do we not? A world still characterized by poverty, oppression, mourning, despair. We live in a world that's still in bondage, largely. The philosopher um, Henry David Thoreau wrote uh, in the 19th century that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. I should gender neutralize that. Most people lead lives of quiet desperation. I um, finished this week reading John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Some of you may have read it. It's an American classic and describes the immense suffering, really, that took place in America at the beginning of the 20th century as um, kind of industrial food production uh, took off and land was concentrated in fewer and fewer hands and through um, the kind of free market capitalism of the day. And he just describes the the suffering of kind of hundreds of thousands of families with their possessions loaded into a truck, driving from state to state, desperately looking for work as their children starve to death. And, and the novel kind of paints this vivid picture. And I mean, for a start, it certainly helped me with um, our so-called cost of living crisis at the moment. You know, it gives you a bit of perspective. But it's just one, just one example recently in my life where you think of the kind of still horrendous oppression and poverty of much of our world. I mean, that was 100 years or so ago, but we still have 700 million people living on less than $2 a day. 
And poverty is far from the only oppression. Poverty is a particularly brutal oppression. Something grinding about it. But it's far from the only oppression. We've got political oppression, obviously, in states like North Korea and Russia and China and many of the Islamic states as well. Kind of dehumanizing and cruel ways of treating people. We have our own oppressions in the West, though, don't we? A little bit more subtle, perhaps. But the oppressions of many of the kind of modern ways of living that leave so many of us in despair and breaking down. And we all still face the captivity of the sin that destroys us from the inside out, that eats away at us. You know, so few people... So few people seem to have anything to live for, don't they? You know, when you really get to know them. So many people deeply unhappy, these lives of quiet desperation, to the extent that, you know, we spend our lives in the distractions of our entertainment culture and slowly kind of dying into our hopeless, shallow lives. I could kind of go on giving examples but I hopefully that says enough to make the point that we still live in this world of captivity and well like this is what Christianity is all about okay this is what it's all about that Jesus came into this kind of world this kind of brokenness to inaugurate a new kind of kingdom that's what it's about That's what it's still about today. If we're Christians, we are not called just to observe the quiet desperation of other people's lives. Just to wring our hands about poverty and suffering and the oppression of the world and say, oh, how terrible it all is. We're called to do something about it. You know, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, that wasn't the sign that his mission had finished. That was a sign that his mission has just begun, really. We are called into this mission. If you are a Christian, this is your calling. Isaiah 61. Your calling is not just to kind of pray as much as you can, be generally nice people, and then sit at home and wait for the resurrection. Like, Some days, that's what we all want to do. But that's not our calling. That's not the vision of the kingdom of God. Your calling, my calling, is to be part of the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus leads to further his mission. So let's just work through the text one last time. Let's sort of personalize it for us, shall we? Not privatise it, not individualise it, as Stacey said, but personalise it. This is our calling. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Well, it is. The New Testament says, you, the church, are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where does the Spirit of God particularly dwell? In the church. That's the primary place. In us individually, of course, The spirits at work in the world as well, of course. But we're the primary place. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon us. 
because the Lord has anointed us. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Yeah. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The Lord has anointed us to bring good news to the poor. Good news of salvation and good news of justice. There is no separation possible between um, the kind of good news of the gospel and the good news of, of justice. We're called to work for this. He sent me to bind up the broken heart. He sent us to bind up the brokenhearted. So actually being really kind and nice does matter. But it's more than that, isn't it? He's called us to bring healing, to bring restoration. Not that this, don't hear me wrong, it's not that like this sort of power and stuff comes from us originally. We're not like the source. It all comes from God. But we are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the vessel and the means by which so much of what God does, he does. He sent us to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Sometimes we still have to press into this literally, like there's still slavery. There's still all kinds of captivity. But also, I think, in, in, a, in a different way as well, you know, we're called to proclaim liberty to those who are captives, to just the dehumanizing and deadening of our culture and our sort of experience of life at the moment. So just so many people, I think, feel trapped in a way of life they don't know how to get out of, but they know they're slowly dying. We're called to proclaim liberty, to bring liberty to that kind of captivity. The opening of the prisons of those who are bound. Bound by sin, bound by failure. I heard a preacher once, you know, when Jesus stood outside Lazarus's tomb and said, come forth, Lazarus, come forth. I heard a preacher say that, you know, if Jesus hadn't been specific, then everybody would have walked out of that grave. But this is the Jesus. He still comes to us in our prisons. Come out. Don't stay there anymore. Come forth. We're called to that. We're called to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, like now is the time. Today's the day. Today's the day to meet the Jesus who will set you free and who will call you to set others free. And the day of vengeance of our God. Let's not duck this. Jesus has returned to set things right. One day he'll return again. Like, whose side are you on? Which kingdom are you in? Because one day he's going to destroy the kingdom that oppresses. To comfort all who mourn. You know, in one of the Psalms, um, the Lord says, like, I collect your tears in a bottle. They're precious to me. Our, Our grief... Our mourning, our sadness is never invisible to God. He collects our tears in a bottle. And we're called to bring his comfort to those who mourn. To give them 
a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Beauty instead of ashes. So many lives are starved of beauty. I, I taught, I'm not going to go off on this. We're called to bring beauty. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. And my favorite of all, garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I don't think there's anything that um, upsets me as much as encountering those who dwell with this spirit of despair, really. Just and the Lord calls us to give a garment of praise instead. A life turned to gratitude to the goodness and grace and rescue of God, rather than a life sucked into the blackness of despair. It's our mission, it's our calling, that all of these who Jesus sets free may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, or again, in another translation, for the display of his splendor. I don't think there's anything more beautiful than somebody whose life's been changed by Jesus. I mean, is anything that more glorifies God than someone who's been set free? Glory of God is mankind fully alive, if you like. Set fully free. They shall, we shall, we shall build up the ancient ruins. Raise up former devastations. This great task of building society building culture, making laws, art, family. Like, these are not secular tasks while we get on with church stuff. These are human tasks that Jesus calls us into. You're the salt of the earth. You should be in there, involved. All that has been ruined, we are called to rebuild from small to big. Like you want a vision for everything that has been ruined, broken down. We are called to raise up, repair the ruined cities. The devastations of many generations, which is probably an apt description of the sort of situation we're in at the moment, aren't we? Like the things that are broken are not just being broken for 10 years. We face the ruins of many generations. And we're called to pitch in. I taught a bit about this in one of our whole church teachings on a public hope. Go and revisit that if you want a bit more of the sort of theological undergirding for this. I would suggest to you that this is not a vision to be half-hearted about as the kids come back. Jesus is a king who is invading the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of God. And if you've given your life to him this morning, then he calls you to this. He calls you to this. He calls you to lose everything for the sake of him and his kingdom. Say, like, sell your possessions. Give up your luxuries, your lifestyle. Stop holding on to your money and go and serve God extravagantly by giving it for the kingdom. That's the vision we're called to. Like, lose your life. Don't play it safe. 
take a whole load of risks. Take a whole load of risks when Jesus asks you to. Um, have you heard the like wild geese chase? That's something we use. Oh, they're on a wild geese chase. Do you know the history of that? And a wild goose chase was originally what the Celtic Christians, they used to refer to the Holy Spirit as the wild goose because he sort of came and went and you, a bit like Jesus says in John 3, you know, the Spirit comes and it goes, you don't really know what's going on. The Celts used the wild goose as an image. Do you know what a wild goose chase was? It was chasing after the Holy Spirit, not knowing where he's going to go, not know quite where he's come from, but chasing after him. Like, that's the vision. Push into this mission. Go on a wild goose chase in the Celtic sense. You know, uh, someone said, didn't they, once, if you haven't found something worth dying for, then you haven't really found something worth living for either. Well, I am a Christian, really, because I think this vision's worth dying for. And therefore, it's been worth giving my life to live for it. listening to this podcast from Amblecote Community Church. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website 